Hello there. Uh, welcome to Temporary Fandoms. Oh my God, we've only gone and done another one. Uh, I'm Ewan. I'm Zoe. I'm John. And Nick isn't here. Nick couldn't make it, but he says hi. And he has some opinions about some of the records that I might pass off as my own. Um, regular listeners or unregular listeners, I guess, will know that if you go to infrequency.co.uk, that's our own website. Um, you will be listening. You can listen to this on your pod player of choice. Or if you go to Mixcloud and fancy subscribing and helping out this show and our sister show, um, Movement Scenes and Genres, for a couple of euros, dollars, pounds a month, you'll also be able to find this pod with music, with the tunes legally in there as well, which is probably the best way to listen to it. Um, okay, so... Right back when we started this podcast, um, the very first guest we had on when we did our sort of pilot, which we then re-recorded a year later, uh, of the phenomenal ESG band was Zoe Von Hess, who is back with us today. Zoe, hello. Hi, how's it going? I completely forgot we did that. Yeah, you were the first. Oh, you yeah. were the first. Um, <laughs> and, now it's, also, it, it's hmm? coming back to me now. I remember where we were recording that too, and there were lots of strange noises and stuff and it yeah. was and, and we didn't know what difficult. we were doing <laughs> no not at all <laughs> and then and, and then after that when we sort of did our first episode proper which was on on the pokes we were joined by john tansy hey john welcome back hey Ian, how you doing um so who are we doing john who are we doing today uh today we're doing uh, happy mondays and sean Ryder uh as the kind of through line that goes through it Okay, wonder, um, this does seem to this doesn't seem too far removed from when you came on and did the Pogues. We've got this sort of working class band with a, let's say, a lead singer who is charismatic, not charismatic, can sing, can't sing, takes way too many drugs. I mean, am I just being <laughs> lazy here, or is there is, is there is some symmetry here, right? Yeah, I think I, I think that's definitely true. And it occurred to me when I, when I was reading it that. Um, it, both bands definitely are so, so identified by the lead singer. Um, and the lead singer is such a focal point, uh, as well as the lyrics, of course. Whereas someone like Shane McGowan's you know, incredibly sort of literate. Uh, Sean Ryder's this kind of mishmash of sort of ADHD imagery that, that just sort of comes flying at you. Um, but, but, but they've got similar uh, uh, cachet amongst the fans, you know. They're the main event. That's what everyone wants to see. Okay, brilliant. Um, well, we've got about... Nine albums, I think, to get through. So we're going to split this into two episodes. Um, and I'm going to try for once to keep it relatively tight and hopefully under an hour because we did have some that started to get quite rambly. Um, not like when we did six episodes on the fall, which was a month of my life that I'm never getting back. Um, so what are you going to hear this time? Um, if you are a regular listener, it's going to be slightly different. You're going to hear John talking through and introducing each album, giving us some context. Um, if you're on Mixcloud, you'll hear some tunes and then you'll come back and you'll hear us discuss for about 10 minutes. 
rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. All right. So without any further whatchamacallit, um, the next voice you are going to hear will be John's. Ryder famously fed journalist stories of growing up in grim poverty and housing estates in Little Halton, where there was nothing to do but take drugs, torture animals and fight. In fact, he and brother Paul grew up in the Salford suburb of Worsley, in a privately owned semi-detached house. It wasn't exactly what you'd call posh, but it's a far cry from the upbringing he claimed. Dad Derek was a postman, part of a semi-professional comedy duo. He was also by all accounts a highly supportive father, driving the band around and paying for recording time and equipment. All that's not to say that Sean had it easy. He has severe ADHD and dyslexia, and his school had no clue what to do with him. He didn't learn his alphabet until he was 27, and even then it was a struggle. Later, all his lyrics were written out from him bits of paper by his dad, because his memory was so bad he couldn't remember his own words. Untreated ADHD is strongly associated with risk-taking, substance abuse and impulsivity. But then on the flip side, it does seem likely that his ADHD is one of the reasons he came up with such bizarre and compelling images in his lyrics. Whatever it was, his charisma, along with the lyrics, undoubtedly connected with people and are a major factor in the band's appeal. Sean's dad got my job as a postman but of course, he stole credit cards from envelopes, smoked weed and dreamed of being in a band. He couldn't play anything, so he decided to be the singer. And his brother Paul taught himself bass by copying records. Through the post office they met Mark Bay, who could actually play the guitar and read music. In the early days, You Can't Hide Your Love Forever by Orange Juice was a key influence on the band, and they in particular. Paul Ryder said, They don't sound like anyone else on that album. You can see the influences, but they don't sound like them, which has always been my ethic. Gaz Whelan was a local lad who owned a drum kit, but more importantly, Sean liked his side parting and his trousers, so he was in. Then a slightly strange young man called Paul Davis pestered Sean into letting him join. He turned up with a tiny Casio keyboard he couldn't play, and just tried to push buttons when he felt he should. He was to continue that approach throughout the band's career. Sometimes his keyboards would sound great, but he could never remember what he had just done, so getting it recorded was a nightmare. Still, his off-the-wall approach was appreciated by a band that valued originality of anyone else. So they had a band, but Sean felt something was still missing. Sometimes the maddest ideas turn out to be the best ones, and making Bez a member of the band turned out to be a masterstroke. In Sean's autobiography, he discusses the exaggerations he'd tell journalists. That's what you do, you play the game. Then you bring in a pal who's a real nutcase like Bez. It might look like Bez is not really doing anything apart from being Bez, but he is really fucking good at that. He was better at being Bez than anyone. Can't argue with that logic. Of course Bez was magnificent. A bug-eyed, haunted scarecrow of a man. He just danced about the stage, utterly abandoned to the groove. More than anyone else, he embodied the hedonism that flourished in the late 80s and early 90s in Britain. Safe to say, audiences loved him. I know I did. 
The band signed to Factory Records and the first release, 45, came out in 1985. So very poorly, as did the next single, The Egg, in 1986. They were beginning to get somewhere despite the low sales, and they scored a support slot with New Order, Factory's only profitable brand at the time. News spread and people started to seek out this gang of misfits who didn't fit into any known scene. Sorrel Downer of Melody Maker saw a London gig and became a highly vocal supporter. Like the existing fans, she saw an energy and an originality that demanded more attention. It's fair to say the Mondays have the London music press to thank for surviving the first couple of years. Nobody was buying the records, but they became unlikely darlings of Melody Maker sounds in the NME. Sean played up to the idea that they were a dangerous gang from the mean streets of Manchester, and the music press were happy to go along with it. Somehow Factory got John Cale to produce the debut album, Squirrel and G-Man, 24-Hour Party People, Plastic Face Can't Smile, White Out. Reviewers were tripping over their words trying to describe the sound. Described variously as Sonic Youth with a Motown Swing, Bastard funk pop album which spits vitriolic torrents of green phlegm in your face. Dangerous and deeply disturbing. Psycho funk. Spastic funk. And even a white Manchester version of Fella Cootie. A gig review by James Brown concluded, I see a band that in the future will come to be spoken of in the same breath as Joy Division in the fall. 10,000 copies of this record were pressed. Only three and a half thousand sold in the first six months. Sean said, I thought that the reviews meant loads of money would come in, but it meant absolutely fuck all. As always, you make up your own mind. Okay, we're with early happy Mondays. Um, I'm gonna literally have to read this because they always screw this up. And and they first came out with Squirrel, 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 Squirrel mm-hmm. and G Man 24 Hour Party People Plastic Face Can't Smile, <sighs> um, which was what, 87. John, um, John, question: How mm. the hell do such a a bunch of shambolic indie dossers uh, <laughs> turn up and get this done? Um, <laughs> what do you mean? How did they actually get it recorded? Yeah, I mean, um, everything seems to be... I mean, okay, first of all, music-wise, this doesn't sound to me like later Happy Mondays. It sounds a lot more like... There's, it sounds like Peter Hook is playing bass. There's this sort of indie chugging. Um, it's a bit lads, 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 uh, but also very Manchester in a kind of way. But we've had drug-fueled bands before. You know, we can all think of bands of stoners, cokeheads, acid heads, smack heads, but bands of basically all four and a giant pile of ecstasy. How does this even work? <laughs> well, I think for the first album, you know, uh, ecstasy, although it existed, uh, hadn't hadn't hit Britain in a, any big way. I think it was in some of the gay clubs maybe, but it wasn't a big deal. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think you can tell. I mean, it is a shambolic record. Um, they had the support of Tony Wilson. Uh, and I think that kind of kind of pushed them through quite a lot because, as you say, you know the stories of them, uh, what they got up to even in those days, uh, would make you think it's counterproductive to making a good record at all. And if you listen to the record, it's not exactly polished. You know? <laughs> no, that, no, that's, that that is definitely true. It doesn't sound like if you said to me, "What does the Happy Monday sound like?" I'm like, 
nightclubs. And then I listen to this and I'm like, oh, it's not nightclubs, is it, really? Um, so what do you think? What did you think of this one? I really like this one. I actually think at the time I really wanted to like it, but it wasn't quite like you said, it's very um, raw and shambolic. And I think it wasn't quite polished enough for me then, but the me that I am now is perfect. So I actually go, when I, when we went back and listened to it, you know, in the group, I was pleasantly surprised and sort of went, oh yeah, I like this. I like the, the kind of lo-fi, uh, elements there and yeah i think it's a good album i like cuff Dam. i think that's a great track and i really like olive oil as well so i was really quite surprised i rate it more now than i did then yeah i mean i would agree with you about that at the time as well it was just it was too grimy for me it was just too dark too sludgy uh but now i look back on it and i can see there's something really quite original going on there i think that was what people saw was that originality or not sounding like anything else what else yeah. was around at the time? What was what was nineteen eighty seven UK indie? Um, I mean, I'm I'm thinking that's like very early pop when it itself before they even became a sort of samples band. I mean, obviously we had the Smiths. Um, who was there? Anybody? I mean, I'm obviously going to Google this while I'm asking you. Well, I'm well, thinking because like my my indie experience was the whole sort of shoegaze thing and. Um, you know, one of my favourite albums of all time was 1988, uh, the, the Valentine's, My Bloody Valentine isn't anything. So this is before that. So I feel like what John was saying is that it, they had their own sound. It's quite a unique sound. There's nothing really like it. So maybe it was just, you know, just at the right time, just before. And it sort of came out of that, that Manchester scene, didn't it? Because there was stuff going on with the Hacienda. So... Once again, I feel like it's a, a bunch of influences. Like it's got all of that um, Joy Division, New Ordery thing, but then it's got um, who's that band? The one they they opened. They're at the opening of the Hacienda. God, I can't. Certain ratio. Yes, yes, yes that's the one. <laughs> them. <laughs> you can see how tired I am. Yeah, certain ratio. So I feel like it's got elements of that, but then it's you know they've just got such a strong front man that it's all kind of through his filter yeah, yeah. i mean there does seem to be this element of sort of a bunch of drunks who really liked joy division doing making some very mancunian sound um i mean i i, I it does work i mean i didn't i mean obviously i knew i think i knew one or two of the tracks maybe not at the time i think i sort of dis- discovered you know became aware of them maybe an album later um, and then sort of went back and it wasn't my thing then um mm. but i'll get on to why that is later, later. On. okay I mean, to, to me I, th- I think uh a lot of the bands that were about at the time as you say the smiths were genuinely huge band uh but the other indie bands were they did tend to be populated by these uh, bands who were enthralled i think to the pastels uh like tilola gosh and uh you know, even the names, you know, as I say, the Railway Children, uh, Tallulah Gosh, uh, 40 Nice Bears, uh, I'm trying to remember the others. Um, and there was a sense that it was all very Breton shops and uh, secondhand bookshops and, and art house cinema uh, and all those things which, you know, are not to be sniffed at, you know, they're great things. Uh, but it didn't have any real... Uh, sex or any sort of dancing or any funk or any of that and i think what happy mondays brought 
Um, you mentioned Joy Division, but it, but Funkadelic, really. Uh, Sean Ryder was obsessed with Funkadelic. Uh, and of course, you know, they're all like virtuoso soul and jazz musicians. Uh, and Happy Mondays weren't. But with a bit of attitude, <laughs> uh, that's what I get from that sort of guitar sound, that kind of funk guitar uh, that runs through it. Yeah. Uh, well, so that was I mean, very, very different to, yeah. to sort of twee indie. Yeah, I really agree with you, John, there, because something like this album, it's very, like, it's got a really farty bass, but it's a funky farty bass. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> a farty like, bass. It's really farty <laughs> if you listen to it. But also it's that punk funk thing. So I, I like I like that they like funk and they don't really know how to play it, but they're going to give it a go anyway. And that really comes across. I like that. Um, I mean, did it have any modicum of success, do we know? Uh, well, I, amazingly, I can remember the figures. I think 10,000 uh, copies were printed, 3,500 sold. So, I had one. I, I bought a copy. You, I, I, one of I, the originals? I don't know. I, I, <laughs> my records are gone. So, But well, I did have it at the time, and I don't know if it was an original. I bought it as an import. It was imported from the UK because I was here in Hong Kong at the time. And I I hardly ever played it, to be honest. I played it a little bit. I think I had a couple of favourite tracks. But now I'm thinking, oh, you know, it's the age-old story of like a record that's gone that you wish you had again. So I w- really wish I still had that record because it's a good record. But I'm surprised. Yeah, no, no, it was, a, it was a real terrible flop. And again, you know, they got John Cale to produce it. They spent a bit of money on it, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And as I say, T- Tony Wilson really liked them. And the music press in London liked them. Right. The people didn't buy the records initially. There does seem to be this thing when we try and juxtapose the the shambolic lads, dosses that they were, with they seem to have this constant thread of top-tier producers mm. throughout their career. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of thinking, how did they get <laughs> this guy? Or why? You know, if... Obviously, like the mu- if the music press loved them and blah 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 blah, you've got there's, there's a certain cachet of, of of maybe cool about it, particularly authenticity, maybe. But still, there's still this sort of how did just Tony Wilson ring people up? <laughs> Do we think I can't imagine Bears getting on the phone and ringing some top tier <laughs> producer? Yeah, can you come in to can you come in and do this? Um, all right, I'm, I'm not going to say this too often, but um. We're going to flip to some music if you are listening on our Mixcloud. If not, the next thing you hear will be John uh, taking us through the next section, the next album, and then the three of us will be back after that. A lot has been written about the effect of ecstasy on the cultural landscape of Britain. Happy Mondays, it changed everything. Of course, the band were variously involved in weed, speed, heroin, cocaine, acid, and anything else they could get their hands on before he arrived. Sean and Bez in particular seemingly had a mission to get as wasted as possible, as often as possible. Sean says that around 1986, he and Bez took microdot acid every single day for a year. Shortly after Squirrel came out, Factory took them to New York. Being the gentleman connoisseurs they were, Sean and Bez were very keen to sample this exciting new drug called crack that they'd heard about. So they decided to go to the dodgiest parts of the city and score some. Sean says they'd read the scare stories, one hit and you're hooked. And the first hit was no disappointment, it did exactly what it said on the packet. 
They obviously smoked it all and went looking for more. This time they had a gun pulled on them, and Sean realised in the morning just how close he had come to being killed. As he says, we still went back down there to score again though. Later they played what Tony Wilson describes as the worst gig he's ever seen. Sean describes himself and Bez as looking like proper coke yetis. We were absolutely flying. I thought the gig was absolutely fantastic. What the audience saw was total chaos, even by Monday standards. Gas Whelan threw up by the drums, and after 20 minutes, PD lay down on stage. Nothing resembling music had been performed all evening. Nothing had changed. It surely wouldn't have lasted much longer. Then back in Manchester, Bez bumped into two acquaintances who supplied most of the clubs in Ibiza with E the previous summer. Bez describes the atmosphere at the Hacienda after the arrival of ecstasy. The clouds of an eternally dismal day had finally parted to let in the most brilliant rays of sunshine. Members of the band were allegedly making a tidy profit dealing the E to an exponentially expanding client base. Asset House and Ecstasy would become the defining features of the next few years of cultural life in Britain, and the Mondays were at the centre of it all. Bummed is often referred to as the first album to be made on Ecstasy, but it wasn't until Paul Oakenfold's remix of Vote for Luck and then Alleluia with Andy Wetherill that they made music that was unmistakably influenced by clubbing. It's been said that the Mondays are often about whoever was producing the records, and I think that's very true. Hale did one thing in Squirrel, Martin Hannett does something quite different on Bummed, and Paul Oakenfold and Andy Weatherall did something different again and helped turn them into superstars. Bummed still is some of the grime and darkness of the first album, but it's pushing towards something else too. This balance might be why a lot of people rate it as their best album. The title and the artwork, including the sleazy reader's wives in her sleeve, seems to belong to Monday's Mark One. The music, particularly Rope for Luck and Do It Better, points to Monday's Mark II. The band had a great experience recording the album. Sean had stopped smoking heroin in favour of Ian Weed, and the band were rejuvenated by clubbing. The reviews at the time were mainly ecstatic. Stuart McConey described Bummed as an explosive collision of two cultures. The traditional value of rock meets the ethic of the dance underground. James Brown described it as a truly stimulating contemporary sensory thrashing. They were described as the new Sex Pistols, as geniuses, as the saviours of music, as the most exciting thing since punk. Once again, they failed to make a profit. Bums reached 59 in the national charts, but it wasn't enough. Factory had invested a lot in the band, and Tony Wilson was in despair. He fervently believed that they were the most important band in the world, but it seemed the world didn't agree. A couple of things changed their fortunes. They gigged hard in the UK and the US, and they asked Vince Clark, Paul Oakenfold and Steve Osborne to remix Rope for Luck. Oakenfold and Osborne's Think About the Future mix was an immediate hit in the clubs. The band described it as exactly the sound they were looking for all along, and interest in this version reignited, reignited sales of Bummed. They were in profit, they were finally completely happy with the record, and real success was just around the corner. 
I'll leave it to everyone else to discuss the music in Bummed, but I do urge you in the strongest possible terms to watch the video to rope for what. Okay, it's just people jumping up and down, but more than anything else, that video encapsulates the band's appeal at the time. Sean is clearly higher than high, but he really does look happy, and the general scenes are, well, ecstatic. Seeing so many people having an absolute time of their lives is a genuine pleasure. It's one of my favourite music videos of all time, and it captures an often chaotic band at a confident, world-beating best. So we had Stoners, the Cokeheads, LSD, Smack, Ecstasy by this point, and... Um, Oh, and why not? Why not throw a bunch of crack into it as well? I mean, we've we've moved on through what, what, what sort of bummed and Manchester Ravon, which is kind of when this is kind of when they broke or semi broke, right? They got into sort of some form of consciousness. This is when I first heard of them, mm-hmm. or, or am I just imagining things? No, me too, me too. That was when I first heard of them. Um, I think again, bummed sold appallingly um, until. Uh, wrote for luck came out and there was the remix it reignited the interest in it they started gigging then there was manchester rave on so it was it was, it was really after bummed that they that pe- people started to buy the record again so it sold eventually but not not initially well, we always associate uh happy mondays with this sort of manchester ravey sound but really they'd released two albums and weren't manchester rave at all until was it was it Weatherall? Um, was did he didn't he do a few of the mixes? Do we know? Well, I think um, uh, Rope for Luck was remixed by Vince Clark, and then the other mix was uh, and um, no, not Andy Weatherall, uh, Steve Osborne, and I've forgotten his name. Uh, but the Andy Weatherall guy. remixed Hallelujah. That uh, was it. This does seem Paul to be Oakenfold. a thing. I mean, sorry, Paul Oakenfold. So this is like late eighties, and if you said to me, "What's another major indie sort of dance smash from the that period?" I'd have gone Screamadelicate, like a year or two later. Which again, somebody took a shambling indie band, overproduced it, turned it into something else, and now when you hear like early versions of uh, Loaded and whatnot, which are basically just guitar songs, you're like, is "This." Is this the same band? And I think this was Happy Monday's moment. Because I think Rope for Look and Hallelujah were the ones that sort of crept onto my local indie dance floor. Um, and obviously then Stone Roses were starting to break as well. So there was this massive gravitational uh, wave, pull, whatever, coming out of Manchester. Um, Zoe, you were in Hong Kong. Was there a, was there a rave scene coming in at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is the indie dance crossover, isn't it? And I think, I mean, I don't know exactly the moment where it started, but I know where it started for me because I was like, Meg, I was so indie at her, you know, it was embarrassing. Um, I was totally into all those shoegaze bands, you know, um, Ride, Lush, My Bloody Valentine. That was my thing. And I did have, I did have some other records from, other bands sort of like Pop Will Eat itself. Um, but there was that Shaman record. Do you remember the Shaman? Oh, I, I, there was, I loved the Shaman and I loved, I loved indie Shaman. So when it was sort of yeah, Jesus Loves so America, the first. 
Exactly. So they did that thing of they were really indie and then they released, I can't remember the name of the album, but it all went like... Intact? It might have been that one, but it just started... Remove Any Mountain? No, it was before that. I'll have to go and look it up. Anyway, you see how well prepared I am once again. But it was that cross, it was that crossover where the indie kids started to realise that it could be quite good fun to dance to things that are a little bit more dancey, a little bit more funky, not just the classic indie disco thing. Do, do you know what I mean? I feel like there was a there was an expansion there. And I remember hearing Groovers in the Heart around that time and going, I'm indie, but oh, yeah. I like that and I want to dance to that. <laughs> so how can, Because otherwise it's like the tribes are separate, aren't they? So what I think was happening was these bands were obviously – in the indie tradition, but they wanted to do what I wanted to do, which is what most young people wanted to do, which is to get high and dance, right? So they, <laughs> I think there was they a, meshed I, well, them together. Look, Snake Bite and Black. Snake Bite and Black. Okay. <laughs> uh, that was, but even on the tribes thing, I, um, I found you, you had your, your proper people, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm from the West Midlands, so we had Grebo kids, the Pop Elite itself, Ned's Atomic Dustbin fans, blah, 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 blah. Um, there was always the Smiths fans who always turned up and did their Smith stance. There was the old school goths. And if you're American, they're listening to this. Um, think maybe there's a bit of sort of flower on a hat and a bit of a cobweb. Now, we're not talking Marilyn mm-hmm. Manson goth. We're talking top hats and sisters of mercy. And then we had puffer jackets and swagger, which started to turn up. Um, and there was, I remember there being a bit of friction in like, I've said before, we used to go to this place called the Raglan. I remember there being a huge fight outside. It was basically lads in puffer jackets. And there was this sort of, I really like the music. And then it was, there's a bunch of lads fighting at my indie club. I'm not sure about this. And it was, it was a bit odd because I, yeah, I was full on indie, but sort of rocky indie kind of thing. And, um, the dancing. I was like, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's cool. I, I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> John, what was it like for you? I mean, where, where well, were you growing up? It's interesting you say that. Um, I grew up in Hamilton in South Lanarkshire. Um, and to me, the thing that I remember is it, it's more a coming together of the of, of, of the tribes around that time. Um, so for us, uh, you had the indie kids who, you know, would hang about the English department, the music department. And you had the football lads who listened to U2 and maybe Madness and maybe Pink Floyd, you know. Um, and, and they were very separate and, they, and they, you would walk this, across the road to get away from them, you know what I mean? Uh, there, was, there was a definite sense if you were a, a, an indie kid, as you said. You know, you, 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 you get hassled. Uh, but then when this thing came along, it seemed like you go to these clubs, people would be dancing together. And, you know, to me, people were like, you know, you'd be sharing cigarettes with people that you really wouldn't have talked to <laughs> six months before. Uh, and I'm not talking about ecstasy. You know, it was more yeah. of the culture uh, of, of Acid House and the fact that, I mean, it's easy to cringe about, you know, nice one matey and all that. But, but actually, it was cool to be nice for a while. It was cool to be kind of friendly and open and pretend you were on even if you weren't. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so, so, so to me, it, 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 I remember that as a time when, when things really calmed down. Yeah, I think what you said, what you said, was quite interesting. How it was a bit of a coming together between sort of indie alternative types and, and a sort of a football crowd. Yeah, but it was still, it was still a sort of football crowd who liked clubbing. 
Um, mm. I don't think we had the, the proper, proper crossover until Oasis, maybe like six, seven years later, when suddenly people who had zero interest in anything vaguely alternative had their, had their football swagger turn up. I mean, Happy Mondays were still, a, they were still out of the mainstream enough. You know, there were, I mean, there was, there were, I, I, God knows how many drugs they took. God knows how this record got made. God knows how they were still alive even by this point. And they had Bez. Let's let's talk about Bez for a second. Where do we put him on our list of hype men? I mean, you know, Flavor Flav, I think, is up there as a as a hype man. But Bez, I mean, what are our thoughts about this? I've just asked people a question they were not prepared for. Yeah. It wasn't um, even a great question. No, um, <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, well, I thought he was great. I mean, he's he is great, isn't he? He's a character, and uh, when we had. Basically, I was an indie kid and I got into a band, a sort of electronic dance band, and we had a Bez. We had a version of Bez. His name's Daniel Whitehouse. Big shout out to Daniel Whitehouse. And he used to do the running man on stage through all of our songs. And But we wouldn't have thought of that unless we'd seen Happy Monday. So that was, you know, it was a funny thing to do. It was funny, wasn't it? It's funny to have someone who's just there to bring the vibe. So... Yeah, I'm I'm a big, big Bez fan. Yeah, me, yeah, me too. And I think, it, 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 as you say, it's funny. It's it just brings a sense of humour to it, uh, to what can be quite poor faced indie gigs. You know, instead you've got this lunatic haunted scarecrow jumping <laughs> up and down on the stage, and I just uh, it just makes you smile and laugh. It is funny. He is funny, and he's charismatic. Um, and I I don't think the Mondays would have been anything like they were without him. It's one of those Sean Ryder things that the rest of the band hated them for, you know, bringing in this guy you can't play, but actually it was a really good move. In 1989, Happy Mondays appeared on Top of the Pops, the same day as the Stone Roses performed Fool's Gold. And for many, it felt like a truly revolutionary event. Indie bands rarely appeared in the show. And for many, these two appearing together was like the Pistols in the Clash or the Beatles in the Stones. You might well scoff, but that's how a lot of people felt. The record buying public along with the music press, and to a certain extent the mainstream press, went crazy for all things Manchester. Indie bands at the time tended to trade in introspective misery with lyrics that emphasised the awkwardness, difficulty and loneliness of youth. Stone Roses, by contrast, embodied the glory of being young and optimism about the future. The Mondays, for their part, were all about having fun with a gang of mates. I tend to think of X-Ray Specs the day the world turned Daglo. It felt like fun, silliness and swagger was back in fashion. Recorded in February 1990, Step On was the song that put the band into the big leagues. Originally recorded as part of an album of cover versions to commemorate Electra Records' back catalogue, the band knew immediately it was too good to give away. They sent Electra Tokoloshi Man instead. Step On was a massive hit, and soon the band sold out two nights at the 10,000 capacity GMEX in Manchester, organised by a couple of local ticket types and bootleggers. The band were unnerved by the jump from playing to 500 people in clubs to this level of adoration. The crowd were all dressed like the Mondays and did their best to act like the Mondays. 
Tabloids reported the fans leaving a trail of destruction, a theme that was to continue throughout their career. Sean says, the whole city seemed like a cartoon. The band were huge at this point, reportedly grossing £427,000 that year. Perhaps unsurprisingly, they had also massively overspent. There was only 26000 left. They were on £150 a week, still stealing equipment. Factory sent them to LA to record their next album. Despite not having any, any real money in their bank accounts, Happy Mondays went to LA feeling on top of the world. California Sunshine elevated the mood and informed the songs. The musicianship, songwriting and lyrics took a massive leap forward and Sean's singing sounded far better than ever before. For me, producers Oakenfold and Osborne managed to get them sounding radio-friendly without stifling what makes them such a singular band. Pills and Thrills and Belly Aches is by far the most commercial album and would become one of the defining records of the era. I'm sure lots of people will miss the dirtiness and attitude of the first two records, but my feeling is that we've still got those records, if that's what we want. We've also got this though, and it's an absolute blast. Just carrying on the Bez thing a little bit, moving into, as we're going to talk about now, is of, of pills and thrills and belly aches. Um, Bez is also responsible for probably about 25% of an indie dance floor shaking invisible maracas whilst doing some form of... I mean, the dance has changed over years. I remember the, the dance when I first went to an indie nightclub and then there was a bit of Mancunian swagger and there was a bit of hair swinging when I still had hair. There was, as I've said before, the acid jazz year where we all got into acid jazz and had the acid jazz dance and then never spoke of it again. Um, and, then, and then these things went through phases. Um, but this was definitely the phase where all of a sudden you had a bunch of 19, 20-year-olds with half mop tops slurring Twisted Melon Man and waving some, some, some invisible maracas. Or I went for the invisible tambourine because, you know... A bit of a hip slap. Um, this was the moment that they got huge and also obviously the moment where for a band like this, it's all going to go tits up. I mean, this was their peak, right, John? I mean, this was when they, this was as big as they're ever going to get. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely by a long way. Um, Pills and Thrills is the most commercial album uh, and by far the most successful album. Uh, and they did, they, they did get genuinely genuinely huge for a uh, for a year or so there uh, but Santa couldn't hold there's, there's no way they could <laughs> keep it together after that I think it's very it's very easy for people not to remember just how huge this album was I mean Step On was everywhere you couldn't you, you couldn't walk into a shop or you know it's, it was just that little bit of piano and that video that video was I mean this was when MTV was starting to turn up as well in like Friends Friends who had a bit more money than me in their houses, they they suddenly had MTV, and this video was everywhere. I mean, this was this was just you could not escape this. Um, Zoe, I mean, did the invisible maracas and the sort of uh, baggy take over Hong Kong by this point? Could you walk into anywhere without having Step On playing? Yeah. I mean <laughs> well, it's it's a tricky one because at that time. 
Hong Kong was still a British colony, right? So there were loads of people coming, loads of young people coming over from the UK to do bar work for a year. So with that came the drugs and the record collections and the clubbing. So there was a big clubbing scene. Um, like Stepon's totally overplayed. So I don't ever need to hear that song again, but it's great. It's great. And yeah, it, but it wasn't, you know, there's so many influences going on here. So I can't really say that it was dominating because there were other, there were, you know, there were other kinds and styles of music. And of course, Acid House was going on at the same time. But definitely, if you went to a certain night, which you definitely could do, you could go to a night called Supersonic, or you could go to a night called Far East, Far Out, and they would play this stuff. So yeah, so it made its way over here, as did the fashion. um, And yeah, and the lifestyle, it was a very laddie lifestyle. There was lots of, you know, drunken debauchery amongst the uh, expat British community here. Oh yeah, it definitely so, oh, sounds very pleasant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> I, I do want to mention how I do miss flares. Every so often, flares come back into fashion, and I think not a crazy big, crazy flare, but I think flares are one of the greatest jeans you could ever ever have. But that is also because I'm 48. Um, lyrics, John, you mentioned a bit earlier on when we talked in the intro about Shane McGowan and lyrics. Um, this album starts with what is possibly, what could be, I don't know, lyrical council estate, council flat genius of, um, son, I'm 30. I only went with your mother because she's dirty and I don't have a decent bone in me. What you get is just what you see. Yeah. Um, and then just this, this song about just some guy that's like, mate, I'm your dad, I'm a bit shit. You know, I think this album lyrically, as well as musically, is when they really, Sean was really firing all all, all of, I was going to say sinisters, cylinders. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that opening uh, verse of Kinky Afro, in fact, the whole song, uh, at the time, I remember just finding it really quite thrilling, really confident, uh, really just got the sense of saying exactly what he wanted to say. Um, and I also love the repurposing of the sort of Lady Marmalade thing, you know, the PII had to crucify somebody today. Uh, I think that's really brilliant. Um, and the commercial success that you're talking about, is it's really quite unlikely. If you listen to Bummed and Squirrel, and then you listen to this album, it's, it's in another world of radio-friendly, I think. Yeah. Oh, no, I... I mean, there was that thing at the time where the British music press and British radios uh, were, were falling over themselves to get anybody from Manchester. I, I remember listening to, I think I think it was Mark Goodyear at the time, the, did the evening session, um, and him going, and tonight we've got a band from Manchester who will be on at half past seven. And I was like, what's their name? You know, they were just so happy to have a <laughs> band from Manchester because that scene was so cool. But even in that scene, there seemed to be this... Yes, there were people who loved both Stone Roses and both Happy Mondays, but Happy Mondays were Hacienda and clubbing or, or associated with, and Stone Roses were Beatles-loving uh, indie band. So there wasn't, I mean, I couldn't even tell you what a Manchester sound was, right? Well, there, there, there was a time when uh, uh, there was a baggy sound, I think, in, characterized by the you know funky drummer rugby. Um, there's actually the Jesus and Mary chain uh, made an album, Honey's Dead, 
That's what I think it's a good album, but it's got a definite baggy kind of sound to it, to, to the drumming. Uh, and there was a time when everyone was trying to get that sort of dance element. But you're right, you know, like in Spiral Carpet, sound nothing like Stones, sound nothing like Happy Mondays. Uh, but a, a general sense that there's a danceability to it. And again, you could say the Stone Roses' first album, it's not there. But when they got out Fool's Gold, suddenly they were in that, that dancey kind of arena. I think there's a word that we use quite a bit on this pod. I tried to use it in the last <laughs> one I did of Music Season Genres, but I was talking to someone who was 15 years younger than me, and he just stared at me blankly. And that word is wazzy. Zoe, I am coming to you. Oh, shit. <laughs> For people who are not of, us, of, of our generation, what the, how would we describe something being wazzy? Because a, a lot of Happy Mondays, wazzy as fuck. Okay, if I, if I had to sum it up, it's that syncopated funky drummer type beat, right, with the snare, like the syncopated snare with a wah-wah guitar, a bit of wah-wah guitar mm. somewhere in there, you know? So, it, so it's like yeah. it's, it's got that, you know, think the charlatans, think uh, – but everybody was trying to be wazzy. I think even the fall tried to get a bit wazzy at one point, didn't they? And and that's unlikely because Marky Smith doesn't like to do what other people are doing. But even the fall got a little bit wazzy at one point. I think it was just that ubiquitous drum beat that sort of signified it's a bit funky. A bit funky. You're totally right about the wah about the wah wah. Um, occasional occasional Hammond organs, but. They were not definitely in there. Um, new fast automatic daffodils. Yes. Uh, shout out to the new fads fans out there. Um, but it, Wazzy is one of those things. It's like, I can define it, but I could go, yep, yeah, that is. No, that isn't. Yep, yeah, that is. It's a spirit, <laughs> isn't it? It's a spirit. It's a lifestyle. It's, <laughs> it's a walk. I've, I've ne- <laughs> it's a, it's a game. Ne- yeah. It is. A, there is a. This is. A, I've never seen a Waz compilation uh, <laughs> out there. Now that's what I call Waz Volume One. Um, yeah. So okay. So they hit the headline Glastonbury. It all sort of went tits up. They were at the peak of their their writing, their their, their commercial success. Uh, they get. Do we, who was producing this? Do we know? Or, I'm guessing again. It was a top tier producer who's who, who's sort of making them. There's no way Stepon sounded like that in the auditions or rehearsal rooms or the recording studio. There's no fucking way that it was that crisp and that because it's not shambolic anymore, right? No, that's Paul Oakenfold, isn't it? On on this one, it's got to be. Yeah, and I think it, it, it is his record in the, in the way that, you know, Screamer Delica is largely Andy, Andy Wetherill's record. Uh, but that was great. You know, there's this really collaborative kind of uh, thing that you see in so hip-hop albums a lot where the producers and the, and the you know, the, the people who are making the music can be can be very, very different. Uh, and I, I think it really worked, but you're right. There's no way this <laughs> that record is how it would have sounded live in the rehearsal room. Um- I, I see, I've never seen a Happy Mondays live. I'm, I'm imagining the Glastonbury set, headlining Glastonbury in 1990 with a incredibly polished record such as this. And this is a great fucking record. It was overplayed and the step on was overplayed, as Zoe said. But I'm just imagining a lot of people turning up to that show and going, you what now? <laughs> you know, just, you know, some people, some people will go and go, yeah, yeah, I, I like the shambolicness. But I imagine you have a lot of people who've suddenly turned into this sort of Ibiza 
Ibiza classic you know, of Step On and then go, nah, this is, this is not the band. It's not the band I, I, I expected. Um, all right. Um, anyone got anything else they want to say about any of the songs on this album? Um, I really like it. I mean, it is their most commercial thing. I've got no complaints about it, but it's starting to get to that point where I'm a bit like, this isn't the band that, yeah, I'm one of those people like, this isn't the band that I, you know, they've still got that thing that makes them special and that makes them unique. And there's no one else that's really, that really sounds like them, but it is that very polished thing that I'm not so much into. I gotta say, it's just on the line, you know, it's just they're walking a fine line. After the success of Pills and Thrills, the band were headlining arenas and playing to huge crowds around the world. In 1990, they were big enough to headline Sunday night at Glastonbury. They requested 220 complimentary tickets, but the band's notorious extended entourage required much more. Over a thousand hangers-on travelled from Manchester to the festival, and amounted to a worthy farm crime wave. Thousands of fake back- backstage Monday's passes were sold and used by the hardened crew, and the event got frighteningly out of control. There were record thefts and reports of men in balaclavas selling hard drugs and taxing terrified stallholders. Sean, for his part, spent 20 hours straight in the luggage holder of the band Coach, smoking heroin with about 20 other smackheads. The band somehow managed to play a set that was ecstatically received, but the Monday's antics officially weren't funny anymore. It seemed to become way too heavy to handle. By 1992, Sean was hopelessly addicted to smoking heroin. He was ruining his life and destroying the band, and they thought that if he stayed in Manchester, he'd soon be dead. So for their next album, Yes Please, Factory decided to send the band to Barbados, they record with Tina Weymouth and Chris France. Barbados was known to be completely free of heroin, and Sean was aware that he really had to quit. He packed a huge glass bottle of methadone in his bag to cope with his withdrawal, and promptly smashed it in an airport toilet. Desperate, he and manager Nathan McGough scooped half of it up and decanted it into a water bottle, with fragments of broken glass still suspended in the sticky green. Still, they could organise something out there. Barbados was just the break he needed from Manchester Smackdowns. However, what Wilson and Factory didn't know was that Barbados was a major shipping point for the drugs trade in Europe and the US. And although there was no heroin, the island was absolutely flooded with cheap crack. Within a few days of landing, Sean had finished all the methadone and quickly discovered that a rock of crack, which would cost £20 in Manchester, was freely available for about 50 so, he and half the band smoked crack all day and all night for the duration of the stay. When he arrived in Barbados, Mark Day says that he had a breakdown. Paul and Sean were heroin addicts, Peter and Whelan were drinking like madmen, and Bez was Bez. He said, I just thought, what am I doing here with these fucking nutters? The stories about Barbados could fill a book, and it seems most are true. PD wrote off three hire cars. 
One night, Whelan was drinking in a bar when a car crashed straight through the front of the bar. Sean. So the label had to pay for a car and a bar at the same time. On another occasion, Sean arrived from a crack deal covered in blood, having written off another car. He begged Whelan to borrow his, such was his need to do the deal. Whelan says, about two hours later he was back, covered in even more blood. Sorry guys, I've written yours off as well. Sean alone wrote off seven cars in Barbados. After destroying a car, he would take out the battery and sell it, to buy more crack. Whelan, who didn't do crack, but drank like a maniac, recalls seeing a lot of local lads dressed like Mancunians. The Stone Islander Manny and Hugo Boskier was obviously from members of the band who had traded with the locals, and you might be ahead of me here, in exchange for crack. Things even got too much for Bez of all people who flew home early. Tina Weymouth said, A lot of times me and Chris were really scared. These guys didn't know where the edge was. They were falling off the cliff. After five weeks, the band had gone through most of the £250,000 budget and only recorded one finished song, Cut Em Loose Bruce. Sean had recorded no other usable vocals and written no other lyrics. By March, they all came home in disarray and Sean entered six weeks of rehab. In May, he went to meet France and Weymouth in a studio in Surrey and completed the lyrics and vocals that would feature on the album. The lyrics are often disjointed, dark and angry. There's at least one gem in there though. For me, Stinking Thinking is one of the best Monday songs and one of the best rehab songs ever. I remember listening to it for the first time and I was surprised to find myself moved by how personal it felt, how human it made him seem. His career had been characterised by gold-plated bravado and a willingness to turn himself into a giant caricature. Now, here he was with the weight of rehab regret upon him, knowing that the time for forgiveness and apology was way past, but hopelessly giving it a go anyway. I think it's brilliant, but the public didn't agree. It entered the chart at 39 and the album Yes Please got mainly terrible reviews. It would be 1999 before the band had repaid their debts and started making money from their records. Paul Ryder describes being back at his mum's, back in my old bedroom, thinking, how did this happen? Mark Day started teaching guitar in schools. While it's not true that Happy Mondays single-handedly killed factory records, they definitely didn't help the situation. By the end of the saga, Factory was dead, the Hacienda closed, the band were penniless and the story was finished. Sean later claimed to be clean and writing new material, really good stuff. Everyone in the music business, everyone in Manchester and every music fan in the UK and the entire world thought, sure you are mate, we'll believe that when we see it. All right, 1992. Uh, indie was, 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 was quite big in the UK at the time. Um, grunge had had its wave, and, but was, America was still quite uh, dominant in the alternative charts, I guess. Britpop hadn't really fully started yet. It was maybe about a year away before Suede started knocking on the door. A lot of indie in the UK was 
was Kingmaker, the Wonder Stuff, Cart <laughs> uh, uh, of the Unstoppable Sex Machine. I mean, I loved a lot of this stuff, but that was what was tend to be going on. And we had the fresh from their, their Glastonbury headlining, Pills and Thrills and Belly Aches, Happy Mondays, on the crest of a wave, with the full support of you know, factory records and you know, representing the Hacienda and... John, what yeah. happened? <laughs> <laughs> Crack. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, next record. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, a, you know, the, it, the, the stories are legendary. And, uh, there's a, a, sort of a bit of it's dealt with in the introduction, but um, not just Crack, actually. Heroin, I think uh, whenever Sean was deep into uh, heroin, everything just went out of him. And after Pills and Thrills, he was hopelessly addicted. And they sent him to Barbados to get off heroin because there was no heroin in Barbados. However, <laughs> there was crack. And it was apparently between 20 pence and 50 pence for a bottle. It would have been 20 pounds in Manchester. So the band went completely loopy, didn't record any, Sean didn't record any usable vocals. Uh, and they completely destroyed the, uh, the advance that they did. Yeah, and then they, they released Yes, Please. Um, for regular listeners or, or not, you might not know, uh, this podcast comes from a Facebook group. And when we did this recently on the Facebook group, the inevitable comments of no thank you came up from quite a lot of people. I mean, this kind of, I mean, it didn't definitely destroy factory records, but it didn't help. They threw a lot of money at, at the crack dealers of Barbados. Um, the Hacienda was sort of wrapping up at this this moment. I mean, this was the death spiral almost of the Happy Mondays. And I'd never heard this album. And when I, I listened to it the other week and kind of forgot it straight away and went, yeah, Happy Mondays, B-sides, kind of, maybe. What's going on here? Um, sorry, what did you think of this when we sort of plowed through it, or did you forget about it um, the second you finished? I did listen to it um and it's just not it's not formed it's it's not formed at all there's just there's no direction there's no creative direction um it does like sound like people who are too busy doing something else they're kind of focus on the music you know and and it's 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 like um it's got all the elements of happy mondays but it's just got none of the the cohesion of it so it's yeah, it's completely forgettable. It sounds like they're jamming. They're sort of they've jammed each track, and the ideas are just not there. That's it. Do you think there's an element? I mean, do 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 we think there's an element? Um, obviously, we've had artists throughout the years um, who are renowned for their overindulgence in, in, in drugs of various types. You know, you've got your, your ones who took too much acid, you've got your, your, your smackheads, blah, 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 blah. Um, do we think there's an element when people are so off their tits that they think it's a good record? Well, I think in, the, I think in this case, uh, uh, Sean uh, Ryder, for example, knew it was a terrible record. He was in a very, very bad mood with everyone. He blames everyone else apart from himself, which... It can be slightly unattractive quality. Um, and no, no, I don't think anyone really thought it was any good. Right. It was one of those, so one of those things where it's contractual. They're waiting. This was, this, I mean, Stone Roses took six years 
to follow to get their second coming. And second coming was, I mean, I quite like it, but it was nothing near the one before. I mean, this was two years after their their zenith of pills and thrills, and it it does sound like a death spiral. It does just sound, as you said, Zoe, like a band who just turned up, jammed in the studio. Went, yeah, that's fine. Let's put it out. Move on. Um, I mean, it's not terrible it though. Been- it's not ter- like it's not unlistenable. But that's almost like worse, isn't it? Because if something is really bad, it's so bad, it's kind of at least it's got some sort of appeal. But when it's just so meh, then there's not there's not much to say. It's just not. Yeah, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Zoe. I think the um, the reason it sounds okay is almost certainly uh, Tina France and Chris Weymouth doing their best uh, <laughs> with nothing. And you, you and and you said it like cohesion, and I think that's. What it lacks is Sean. What it lacks is Sean Ryder with his vision and his ability somehow to make that madness coalesce, which which I think he does possess, despite the fact that he never writes any music and, and he's a complete you know liability. And I think he is that focal point. And in that album, he's missing. I mean, he was literally missing for most of it. By 1995, Manchester and Happy Mondays were a distant memory. Since Pills and Thrills, music fans had burned through grunge, classic US hip-hop, trip-hop, any amount of electronica and dance music, drum and bass, and most of Britpop. Radiohead were soon to dominate the indie-leaning landscape. I was 15 and at school when Manchester was big, and I was now 20 and a student. I'll never forget my older brother, with whom I saw Happy Mondays a few times around 1990, telling me Sean Ryder had a new band. I couldn't believe it. He's still alive? And making music? He agreed it was surprising. But what was even more surprising was that the new single was good. This couldn't be possible. He must be mistaken or winding me up, but it couldn't actually be any good. Yeah, he said casually. Bez is in the band too. As if this was a normal piece of information and not the most amazingly exciting news in the world. Bez is in the new band. Unbelievable. I asked him if Bez was still just stepping up and down with his elbows out and stuff and he assured me that he was indeed still doing that one thing. I was beyond delighted. I only mention this story because I'm sure my personal reaction was replicated by many thousands of people like me across the country. We weren't just curious about the new material. There was massive goodwill surrounding this comeback. A sense of go on my son. When I saw the band at Tea in the Park Festival in Hamilton, the crowd reaction was near hysterical. Sean was loud, confident and looked healthy. And his charisma was more powerful than ever. Kermit was grinning and bouncing about the stage. The roar when they came on was deafening, and then when the line, Come all ye faithful, so joyful and triumphant, arrived, everybody went apeshit. It might seem odd to think that 20-year-old should have felt nostalgic for his youth of five years ago. But there was a sense that this was our hero, and he was back stronger than ever. Black Grape wasn't just great party music, and It's Great When You're Straight wasn't just a fun album. It was a scarcely credible, heart-swelling comeback, like the most unlikely final act in a sports movie. Mancunian Lazarus had just walked right out of the tomb, 
And so are Lazarus's best mate who dances about a bit. In the years previously, Sean had been listening to a lot of hip-hop and decided he wanted to absorb some of that into the new sound. He teamed up with Kermit and Jed Lynch from Ruthless Rap Assassins, Rapper Psycho and Wags from Paris Angels. And in 1993, they started working on some songs. The US supermanager Gary Kerfist, who had previously managed the Whalers, Blondie, the Ramones and Talking Heads, among many others, had reached out to see what Sean was up to which was surely the first massive stroke of luck in this story. Sean told him he envisaged the new album as the Rolling Stones meet Cypress Hill, and Kerfirst hooked them up with producer Danny Sabre, who'd worked with both. That seems to have been a masterstroke. Sean describes the recording sessions as fun, loose and creative. He says, I wasn't actually on the gear when we started recording, but I was back on it by the time we finished. Let's face it, if you put me, Kermit and Wags together, there's a certain inevitability about us getting some heroin. I'll leave it up to you to decide if that was the reason they managed to record a great album and then the aftermath was completely messy. Sean says he wanted an upbeat Rolling Stones meet Cypress Hill with a bit of Serge Gansberg, stereo MCs and a bit of reggae thrown in, but all reinterpreted in my own style. When they finished the album, he says... I felt as confident as I had done when we finished Pills and Thrills. We knew we had something really special, and more importantly, it was original. This record does what it does very well indeed. Reviews described it as a surreal, funky, profane and perversely joyous album that is overflowing with casual eclecticism and giddy humour, and buzzing with the life-affirming, innovative, fuck-you spirit of true rock and roll. Sean's lyrics have never been funnier. He's firing in all cylinders. And there's hardly a weak track in the album. Enjoy. Right. Happy Mondays were dead. Um, but then, with what possibly sounds like the most mid-90s sound I could possibly imagine. I mean, yeah, you've got your Britpops, but if we get a if we get a line from the Soup Dragons um, with um, I'm Free, with a bit of sort of ragga rap vibe on there, we go straight all the way down to Black Grape. I mean, Sean's back, Bez is back. Uh, he's brought in, oh, what are their names? Kermit and... Psycho. The other one? Psycho, thank you very Rex. much. Yeah. Um, We've got this album that I, I probably listen to this album right now once a month. Um, I don't get all the way through because I think it starts amazingly. That opening harmonica, that the sort of you know we got what in the name of the Father. We know we've got Reverend Black Grape. Um, absolutely brilliant first half of an album. Second half of the album, I really couldn't give much of a shit about, but that first half goes on all the time in that car, usually when I'm a bit drunk. Um, lyrically, we've got, again, some of my favorite Sean Roy. Um, Jesus was a black man. No, Jesus was Batman. No, 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 that was Bruce Wayne. Makes no fucking sense, <laughs> but is just simply marvelous. I mean, yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this was, you know, this, the first half of this album is, is Sean Ryder coming back and go, don't forget about me. I can still do something good. 
John, well, I mean, where were you? Where were you on this? I mean, did it did it bring you back into sort of caring about them again? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I couldn't have been more overjoyed at the comeback. That great. Uh, but, you know, partly just from a sort of personal uh, kind of uh, compassionate point of view, I, I assume Sean Ryder was or really in some horrific situation. Um, and then for them to come back, it's not just a good record, but such a joyful record, such a fun record. Uh, it really just, I, 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 I have got no cynicism about this record, even though I know how dated it is. Uh, the, the fun and the kind of, sense of, of of him somehow rejuvenating and, and becoming a new man was uh, it was great you know i loved it yeah and like i said this was this was at the peak of Britpop before Britpop even became sort of brit rock you know this was still the sort of art school Britpop. you know you've got blur and oasis is just starting to sort of clash horns um this was I mean, this was all. This was pre-cool Britannia, for want of a fucking horrible phrase. But yeah, there was a lot of fun, as you said. There's a lot of swagger about it. I just think it's just enjoyable. Who could possibly not like this record? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is that you? You aiming that at me? Well, yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm not. I don't want to say that I don't like it. And I, you know, I'm I'm a bit with John in that. I'm really happy that Sean Ryder's got a, a second chance and come back with you know, something fun and, um, you know, you get invested, don't you? And, and you want, you want people who are going through hard times to kind of do well and not end up a fuck up. So in that sense, I'm very much on his side. It's just the music is just not for me. It's just a little bit too cheesy, a little bit too on the nose, you know, but I'm happy for other people to enjoy it. Obviously just not for me. <laughs> um, I mean, it was quite successful. I seem to remember. I seem to remember quite a lot of top of the pops and, and probably the word or whatever else was, was on TV at the time. Um, I do remember. I mean, some of Sean's appearances are, for those who are not from the UK. The word was amazing television when you got back from the pub at eleven o'clock on a Friday night. It was also car crash television, and the presenters could be absolute dicks. I seem to. I got memories of Sean Ryder just being so out of his head. On, on the word a lot of the times, except for when Black Grape came on. He seemed in a great place, you know. He seemed to be firmly, firmly back. Um, all right. Well, what we're going to do is we are going to end there for this episode, um, and we're going to find out exactly what Sean does with his newfound success. I mean, you can kind of predict it uh, <laughs> in, in the next one, uh, which will be out probably in a week, maybe something like that. Um, all right. Um, thank you for this episode to, to, to Zoe. Thank you. And thank you, John. Thank you. And you listener will, will all be here. Well, we're going to be here in five minutes time, but we'll, we'll be here next week. Bye. <laughs>